previously on Storyological. <laughs> I have something else I would like to say about Call Me By Your Name, which is immediately we came out of the theater and I bought the book and read the book, but I actually preferred the movie. Maybe that's because that's what I imprinted on, but the book is less focused and I think it loses some of its intensity because of that. There is this one thing in that opening couple of pages where Elio talks about the rounded ball of Oliver's heel slipping in and out of his espadrille and that to me is like the the intensity that sentence that paragraph is what the film captures so perfectly that sounds like a good example of I've I've heard people discuss how books possess an interiority that movies don't and I always thought that was a a failure of criticism because it's not that movies don't possess interiority. It just requires a different skill in the artist to create, to invite you into that interiority. And it actually, to put books down a little bit, it requires more imagination on the part of the viewer to consider and enter into the interiority of the person you're just seeing. Much like in real life where... <laughs> Emma, I'm sorry, but you're not a book. And yet I still imagine you contain an interiority without having to read your thoughts on a page. I mean, it's just me. <laughs> yeah. Just me. You're just, you're just thinking there, look, who is this? Who is this blank space that is in the room with me? Oh, no way. I bet she has some internal monologue going on. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is A Strange Tale from Down by the River by Banana Yoshimoto from her collection Lizard, translated by Anne Sheriff. Sharif? One of those two. Also, you can now go over to Electric Literature and read it there because this week's episode we are doing a crossover with their awesome magazine. Yeah, recommended reading is very cool. I get a newsletter. And it's like, here's a story, and I have a week or two. I don't remember how long it is to read it. And then it goes away, unless you give them $5 a month, which is a pretty good deal for getting uh, all of the stories they publish. The really cool thing is, even though we're going to talk about this story a lot right now, Emma has written an introduction to the story that's running on Electric Lit's site now, and you guys should go read it uh, along with the story. This is a story about Akimi, a woman who gets engaged to the rich son of a company president and finds her history and her family's history and blisters up to confront her before she can move on to the the next phase of her life. And so her, her history that she has to confront is that she spent time with a group of friends who explore sex, have orgies, have multiple relationships, as she puts it, do everything together except tying each other up and necrophilia. <laughs> I love, I love the way that. she just goes whole hog and like, tie each other up you know that could that's a whole host of different things but necrophilia uh-uh let's get that on the table or rather off the table right away and then her family's history we'll we'll get to later but that she also has to confront issues that that her mother and father talked to her about and i think as i read that through this story i i began to understand that it's a story about becoming friends with your past and in the same way that having a good relationship in the same way that a good relationship with your emotions is is to see them to acknowledge them not to suppress them uh, and not to be consumed by them 
And that's what Akimi has to do. She has to look at where she's come from and not be afraid of this past in herself and look at where she's come from in her own life and not be afraid of that and look at where she's come from from her parents' relationship and and come to terms with that as well. And that is the arc of the story is her confronting in different scenes with different people these these vignettes these ideas from the past and and making peace with them in a way that allows her to to build a relationship with the man she gets engaged to i felt like the story which was so much about what we hide from ourselves or what we don't want to see about ourselves or what we try to push away from ourselves it is such a generous and boundless story though it is, it is a patient story and it's gentle in its way and so ambitious in what it's trying to ascertain, which is a, a kind of understanding of, of hope. What is hope? And I love the way the story exists in and moves through time. You know, the title of the story is A Strange Tale from Down by the River and Rivers, too, in particular, play a large part in the story. And I loved the way the story bobs along and moments rise and are washed away. There's, there will be a scene like, oh, my boyfriend proposed to me, and he will wander into that scene and wander away off into the past. There's a feeling of getting caught in swirls and spun out. There's a description Akimi gives of herself at one point, a feeling like she's always been somebody who skims along the surface. And I was really in love with the way this story captured the feeling, like we feel for a while that we're skimming along the surface, that for a story that's using a river as such um, such an anchor on which mm-hmm. to hang itself, we're kind of not really going anywhere at all. And yet, I, I, it's, just, it's just a very wonderful progression into depth. She doesn't um, spend too much time in each scene examining motivations or... Uh, deepening our understanding of of people too much but but as each of these encounters goes by you accrete this kind of knowledge that washes through you that understands who she is and how she works and when she bumps into one of her old sex friends in a cafe he says to her oh you understand how to flow with time and not get stuck in one place and you think at that point, oh yeah, that you know she's got it. She's got it nailed. This is the crux of the story that she understands how this works. But then he goes on to say, or at least you're good at pretending to move on. I think most people live their whole lives repeating the same patterns again and again and again. And I really love the double-edged sword of that mm-hmm. of that analysis that he gives of her because this is a guy she didn't want to bump into that she's kind of irritated with having seen and angry about what he says and his intrusion into her life and yet he comes at her with this kind of truth that she knows herself right that links back to the fact that she skims along the surface she's pretending to move on she's pretending to be involved in stuff and it's only through the kind of the reflection and journey she goes on in this story that you get a sense that that maybe this time she's ready to move on for real ready to engage in the next portion of her life in a in a deeper way 
In our interview with Sophia Samatar, we talked a bit about there's often this emphasis in creative writing classes or story critiques on characters being defined by action. What decisions are they making? What are they doing? And much less emphasis on observation, much less emphasis on being. I remember in Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, there was something he talked about the difference that he saw broadly between an American style of comic and a Japanese style of comic, manga, where American comics are person, 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 action, 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 action. Japanese comics, manga would often be page, clouds, wet leaf, um, <laughs> dripping pipe. Like, there would just be an accumulation of images that put you into a scene. And it's really broad. Like There are American comics, particularly indie comics, that do that. And there are Japanese comics that are about Ar Armageddon and small children with giant foreheads. <laughs> Uh, that's Akira, that if you a don't really? know. That's a real, that's a real, I mean, he had a lot of giant other parts. I did not recognize it from that description. Um, well, that's, that's why you should get my newsletter, Chris Reviews Everything, and just, uh, you get the special edition where I black out all the titles and you have, <laughs> you to, have guess, to guess what, what it is, is this he's reviewing? I don't know. Oh, uh, it was Die Hard. You didn't even know. But in this story, we, we see much more about observation. We see much more a desire to demonstrate how our lives can turn around based on how we see things. And we see an accumulation of images here. You were talking about how we never go inside, to a certain extent, the motivations of characters within each scene. We just seem to get the surface, and yet a depth accumulates. And I think that's because what's often lost in talking about action, 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 is something that you see in comics, whatever, American comics, manga comics, there's no reason why, with careful observation, if you show a character in this state of being and then show them in this state of being, that you're not inviting us to wonder about the decision that got them there. We may not know for sure how that decision mm -hmm. was made, but you show us enough of those images of being over time. We begin to see the negative space that you're mapping out, and we can see the actions and decisions that are being made without having to be there when the decision is made. Mm -hmm. Like... That's a little like the um, the goldfinch. That yeah, how yeah, I was thinking about that. One of the things that was both interesting and kind of frustrating to me was that all of the big decisions happened off stage. We would get this really intense passage or chapter about I forget the kid's name now. About, Doogie Hauser. <laughs> yeah, about how he's living, yeah. and then it would stop. And you'd get the next chapter and you'd realize that in between those two chapters, something horrific had happened. Like he'd started selling fake furniture and was in too deep and was afraid that he was going to get caught. And you don't see any of that growth. But you just jump in in the middle of, okay, well, this has already happened. And it happens three or four times across the book. And I think there was part of me that found it frustrating in that, in that story. But in this story... I've, I find it less so. Maybe I'm more forgiving of a shorter story that I expect the negative space more readily and so I'm more excited to fill it in. I would hazard, though, that's because the tone of the narration in this story and the events lend themselves to the style. So the tone is a bit more... like There's a gorgeous shallowness to the tone. Right, yeah, kind of a clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Movement yeah. to right. it. Um, and the events, while there are a couple of well, at least one shocking event. 
is nothing like Goldfinch, where the style of the narration is super verbose and the events are super melodramatic. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, I liked I liked the structure of of how this was put together, how it was built around these encounters, both with her past lovers and with her parents. And when there's one scene with her mother and one scene with her father, her mother tells her a new truth about where she was born. She was born down by the river when her mum was staying there and, you know, her mum talks about how happy she was and how peaceful and how, you know, no wonder she likes the river. It's it's this place that she came from. Then a little while later, her dad comes round to see her and says, actually, what was happening is I was having an affair and your mother was suffering from exhaustion and we sent her away to recuperate. And also she threw you into the river one day, but it seems like you were fine. So we thought we probably wouldn't tell you about it. And that is a fairly significant piece snippet of history to come up from from anyone's parents. And I love the equanimity with which she absorbs it and kind of thinks like, oh, so much makes sense now. And how I love my boyfriend's flat with the river and how I've always felt this kind of relationship with it. It doesn't have the melodrama that something like uh, the goldfinch has. And so ostensibly the the story is structured around she fall, she meets a guy, falls in love, they get engaged, and then the, the resolution or the end of it is he discovers her past. But he doesn't get a line until that final scene. Their actual meeting and courtship is just whipped through in quick summary. It's like, okay, yeah, blah, 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 this happens. Now let's get to the meat of it, which is her history and her family's history. And it's not until... Somebody sends him nudie pictures of her in her past. Wait, is that a is that an eminism or British? I mean, nudie picture is a totally a real <laughs> phrase. No one says it though. I don't know. Oh. I maybe I just read it and I decided it would be enjoyable to say it out loud. Um. Anyway, and so and then, you know, he he forgives her, and it's it's only in that scene that he gets to be a real character, and I. I think I take that as it's not until that moment that she really sees him as a real person, that she's she's been through all of this process of addressing her own past that allows her to open up to the others in her life. Do you know what this reminded me of? I do not. Uh, this reminded me of a quote that Gabriel Garcia Marquez said once, not to us, but uh, it's something that we heard from John Green on Crash Course Literature. And what what Marquez said was, what matters in life is not what happens to you, but what you remember and how you remember it. Uh, And I thought, when I was reading this story, I was like, oh, thesis. No, I didn't really think that. (laughs) I don't often think the word thesis in my head, but I did think all of the decisions we've been talking about, about not focusing on actions or decisions like in the moment, kind of highlight that all of the movement in this story is an accrual of information about what has happened in her life and a shifting in how she thinks about it. Like when we begin, when she talks about sex, she talks about it as though it was shameful because when she would go out in the light of day, she would be embarrassed to see those people. So by the end, there's a there's that manifestation of all of that she was ashamed of and in, in, in the cold hard fact of just images that now her intended has. And all of the work that she's been doing beforehand to to reimagine her past because of her parents and all of the work she's done in understanding how her parents experienced 
this horrible thing <laughs> where they were depressed, there were affairs. Like understanding how they chose to deal with that, how they chose what to remember and how to remember it, kind of prepares her for this moment where her boyfriend looks at these pictures and is like, "Well, this is how I choose to see it." So how about that? And she's like, "Oh, okay, that's cool." And then <laughs> yeah, she makes it so much better than I hoped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Yoshimoto makes it really apparent there uh, in a passage. Uh, where she says, I shut the window and looked down at the river again. Unlike the river I had seen moments before, full of chaos and anxiety, the water now appeared calm and powerful, like an image frozen by a camera lens. It was peaceful, like the passage of time, flowing by, gentle and unchanging. We're, we're, we're getting it. Like, we got it. Yes. Like, the river has not changed at all. Mm -hmm. That's not how rivers work. I mean, they might. I guess, in theory, there could have been a It's a different time scale that, that they change. Uh, yes. Yeah, but it's only how she's seen it that has changed. And I love how that harkens back to what you mentioned earlier about the way that man that she met from her past life, what he says about how she can flow through time so wonderfully, or at least she pretends like it, that there's a doubleness to that. There's a cut. And I love how that means when you get to the end of the story and she calls down the old name of hope, there is a doubleness there because we are in a position understanding how this story has taught us to read it, to consider that Akimi has not really changed at all. She's only changed perceptions of her past. And does that mean that she's really confronted it? I think, yeah, I, I really love that as a question because I think that in order to change your perception of something, of yourself, of your past, of, of the world, that, that is a manner of confronting it. That is the work that you do to reinterpret things, whether it's through all of the people she sees in this story or through going to therapy or uh, just working, working with yourself. I think that that changing those pathways and assumptions is a form of confrontation. Yes, or, or hiding. Um, like repression, like choosing not to remember something is confronting it by pushing it away like i love it's that, true that, i was kind of making an assumption about it being more, more of a positive engagement i guess yeah and i think that is probably what's in the story but it's 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 a joy to me that it's not like suddenly she changes how she sees her boyfriend mm -hmm. it's not suddenly like the the story shifts and it becomes more in scene and it becomes more or it becomes less like a movie. Like, I think all of those little drops of, of, of how Kimi skims over the surface of things is still there when she's looking at the river and seeing it as this flowing golden thing. And there's that last line, I wonder if that was what people in the old days used to call hope. Oh, Where that line is so amazing. It is. And I think part of why it's amazing is the line does not in itself sound exactly hopeful it does sound hopeful <laughs> but also she's saying in the old days they used to call hope like, right where did it go who are these old days? <laughs> which are the old days yeah it sounds I like a line it. from a movie and so that also is what helped like it like this person feels real to me they don't feel finished mm -hmm. my my pick my pick for this week is darla by Jillian Tamaki. It is in her collection Boundless. And it's also 
has a little to do with a wild, sexy past. Darla is about a TV show called Darla. And when you say the TV show's name, it really should be Darla because Darla <laughs> so is stylized as the best TV titles always are with an exclamation point. Uh, so that you really feel the desperation? I don't know. But Darla is a story about that show called Darla that was a short-lived TV program uh, that was familiar in a way. It was a kind of sitcom, a young Midwestern girl trying to make it in the big city, New York, of course. That's the only city that exists in sitcoms. (laughs) Um, She has hilarious adventures and also sex, a lot of explicit sex, because that's the thing. Darla is a sitcom porno. And our point of view in the story is the creator of this show. And it's it's long after the show has gone off the air. And he's recounting the kind of flare and fall of this star in his life. Both Darla herself, who he's lost touch with and may or may not have been in love with, is not really part of the story. But I love that her face at one point takes up a whole page. And there's just... Such, such focus. Oh, yeah. And it's such, it's so beautiful. You get such a sense from him of his dream, this feeling that this show represented something that really mattered to him. For some reason, it was really important to him to blend situation comedy, a beloved cast, comforting plots, laughter, with sex. Um, And we don't really know why it was canceled, though it's not really hard to guess (laughs) why this American TV show was canceled. Um, Nor do we learn really much about the creator. We don't really learn anything about him and his life outside of his relationship and his feelings about this show. And yet, when you reach the end of the story, for me, I do get such a sense of heartbreak and pride and loss, all drawn and delivered with such sincerity that it left me feeling swept away in this perfect kind of melancholic happiness. Yeah, it's it's short. I don't know, it's half a dozen pages of of comic but it's perfectly intense and she even though it's short she doesn't shy away from really focusing in like like that page that you mentioned that is just entirely focused on her and in fact there's two pages that are about her walking those those are the opening titles of the show yeah yeah right so they're the opening titles of the show that she has rendered in comic form and the first page is focusing on her legs and then the second page focusing on her face and you have this just gives you this kind of space to sit and look and admire and feel the potential in that young woman walking the streets and what will she find in the city and that and it contrasts so beautifully with like you say the melancholy of the story and this guy's perspective looking back on it as a failure as something that was cancelled and moreover that he's got these kind of mixed feelings about now because he he goes to fan conventions but the people who go express their love for Dala and yet don't seem to really love it in the way that he wants them to it's a little too what is how does he put it wink wink yeah yeah totally right somebody uploaded the show that presumably they recorded on vhs or something in the past and they put it up on youtube and now it's developed a cult following on the internet and he i love how he says of going to the conventions he's not really sure what they're celebrating maybe Mm. it's the internet he doesn't know what the (laughs) conventions are about oh i love i love how you mentioned uh promise because i i thought a lot about 
where this heartbreak comes from. How does she manage this volume of heartbreak in such a short story? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I thought about, it's a love story, but it's not really about a girl or a boy or an alien or a dog. It's about an idea. It's about like what you were saying, about the potential, about the promise of this idea and the conflicted feelings of still feeling proud of that idea, but feeling like it has both failed in some way, but not just failed, transformed. Like in a way, he's achieved success with this idea, but not necessarily in the form that he wanted. It is a transformed promise that really gives the story a lovely weight to it, a lovely wrestling, a lovely wonder. And one of the ways I think Gillian achieved that was from the way that she framed the story, both literally and figuratively. Figuratively, there's the story frame that she's chosen to set it in this complicated future where the show has a second life. And so we get a kind of noir voiceover where, you know, kind of starts, I met this dame once. She was the love of my life. And already, you know, well, I this guess she's not, not anymore. Go well. <laughs> like, yeah. There's such a sense of loss already. And, it, and it's very much kind of similar to the story we just talked about and the feeling that what matters is what you remember and how you remember it. The story is entirely encased in the way that the creator is remembering it. But also I love this very simple thing that Gillian did, which was for the most part, whenever she's showing you bits of the TV, they are boxed in, in the same square, tiny aspect ratio of television in those days. And whenever there's life, it's, it's boundless, it's formless. There is no frame around life. Right, there's no panels on the page. Exactly. And yet there is the one image from the TV show that is not framed, that is not within a panel, and that's the image of sex. There's one image of, of a sex scene from the show where the words are written over the <laughs> naughty bits of the lady. And I, you know, that made me wonder, why did Gillian do that? I don't know. That's still just an interesting question. I think it has something to do, though, with maintaining the creator's point of view, where the creator has such a a sense of earnest sweetness to it that he may not really want that to be in his memory or think about it. Anyway, I thought that the controlling of the way that she used panels and the way she framed the story added to a little bit of the sense of this growing promise, of this, this thing that exploded out of its form and for the creator took on this kind of beloved perfection, this ideal that had been lost. I, I think the how deeply embedded everything she does is in in the narrator's point of view is what what drives the depth of emotion and the success of this story and I think my favorite panel is the one where from a distance we're looking at the stars of the show having sex but we're not looking at them directly we're stood behind the production crew and so there's a line of tubby middle-aged guys watching this couple have sex and you get this very dark foreground which is this line of crew and a very washed out background and then a cut out hole in the ceiling where all of the lights and cameras are set up to to make the show and when you look at that shot you're like yeah okay it looks like the things I've seen of a tv set but then as I came to realize that it was probably looking at it from where the writer's seat was so I look at that panel and it's striking and beautiful from a design perspective and from a narrative perspective from a design side of things the amazing contrast between those dark figures in the foreground all looking at this very washed out scene in the background that's where the focus of attention is it's so striking 
Um, and such a strong choice to look at that scene from that position. And I love that it's kind of that reminiscence from the narrator is the creative process is not about the outcome. It's not about the reception. It's about that time of being on set and being with those people and bringing something to life that was important to them all. I really love how, how it puts you inside of that moment. All stories, to a certain extent, are an invitation to wonder. And in, in this story in particular, I felt like that. I felt like the, this narrator's tone, the way the creator talks about the show, he feels a bit detached from it. It feels a bit like he's giving an interview where he's kind of going over the things, you know, that he said before. The kind of feeling that sometimes when you listen to creators, they're giving you their feelings about a show that they've rehearsed and thought about a lot. And they can sound private. But they all. Uh, but you kind of know that this is a thing that they've come to. They're, they're right. not. They're right. not grappling with anything explicitly. And I loved one how that makes it gloriously complicated because, as we talked about, there's that you you can read the story and look at the art and see what's focused on and what's giant and listen to him talking and think about what isn't he talking about here? What isn't he saying? And and so that's why for me, it really felt, I really felt a sense reading it. And when I finished it, all I was doing was thinking about the reality where this show existed. I felt such an invitation to wonder about what kind of world would we have to live in for a show like this to exist, to wonder about the kind of world we do live in, where you can imagine that last panel, the last, not the last panel, but the last page where the creator is lamenting a bit of the wink, wink from mm -hmm. the internet crowd. And he's saying that it's not such a bad thing to just be sincere. That that last word, sincere, it reminds me of the Yoshimori story, partly because we're just talking about both of them, so everything reminds me, but also because it lands at the same time with such a sense of regret and of hope. And yet it also feels like, I don't know what your, what did you want to say with this show? Like, <laughs> I can figure it out if I want to, but you haven't told me what you wanted to say with the show like it's such a radical idea and i love how radical it, it is to make a sitcom sitcom porno <laughs> and it's kind of only a radical idea in the u.s yeah that regret he expresses at the wink at the winking reminded me of the uh the movie we saw the best worst movie about troll 2 maybe we didn't watch it together Remember, we watched a film called Troll 2 with Danica when we were at Clarion. Um, it's a terrible, terrible horror movie. And it became this kind of cult classic where they'd have screenings in loads of different cities. And the, one, the actor who played the kid in the movie made a documentary about trying to find out what had happened to all the other actors because they weren't professional actors. They were just kind of, they answered a call for being extras and then the director gave them these, these starring roles. And it was so fascinating to watch, particularly the main guy, the dad in the family. His relationship with it is, he's this charismatic dentist in his local town. And he's really excited to be found and to get involved with these conventions and really excited that people uh, are sharing their love for the movie. But as he comes to realize, like, it's not a sincere love, that it's a kind of a... a a patronizing or a, or a kitschy love he becomes disillusioned with it and he doesn't want to trot out his catchphrase anymore and then 
you know, the numbers at the conventions start to dwindle and you can just see his kind of crushed self slouching in this dank room in a convention center with 23 people in the audience answering the same questions. And it's heartbreaking, really so sad. I want to go back to the last line for a second and also talk about masturbation. Um, the last line, he says, there's nothing wrong with being sincere. I think it's important, like we're talking about sex. And at least my experience in the US, the reason why you can't have a sitcom with sex is that sex is bad. Um, it, it's something that my speaking. mom and I would talk about all the time when I was like 14. She would be like, I don't get it. In a movie, why can you chop someone's head off? And that's PG-13. But if there's a man's penis or a woman's breast, that's R. Only adults are allowed to see the parts of people's bodies. But if you want to <laughs> cut those bodies into pieces, cool. That's, that's fine, cool. yeah. If you want to see like the inside of someone's flesh as their head flies off. Yeah, yeah, you can squeak that. that in PG-13. You want to say the word fuck, you can maybe get one of those. But if you want to actually fuck where people can see that you're, act that, mm -hmm. that you're human beings with body parts and not just a head above sheets <laughs> with the wistful memory of having done a thing. Um... <laughs> are not allowed and, and tv in the u.s network television at least especially in the 90s or well especially for all of the period of time before sopranos and things like that became a bigger hit the it couldn't be r uh it wasn't allowed and i remember <laughs> growing up and like trying to watch you know like hbo or cinemax through our scrambled cable box because that's how you couldn't see things and that was my experience to a certain extent of seeing sex visually was this kind of scrambled, dark, sometimes exotic alien green color. Like it just <laughs> made it all the more otherworldly and weird in a sense You're that like, you were doing what is this stuff? that you were doing something wrong. Like in a sense, you were uh, legally I was doing something wrong and that I was trying to watch something I wasn't paying for. But that's that's kind of where sex ends up. Like if you can't, if culture can't talk about it, then it implicitly gets buried there's a reason as a kid you're like there's a reason that we can't talk about this i assume it's not because it's the most awesome thing ever and people right. just want to keep it a secret i mean there's a little bit of that feeling like the adults just don't want to tell you about it because it's so good and they don't want you to get a jump start on it they want <laughs> you to take your time suffer like everyone else uh that's that's not really true though so you know that little part of me the little kid that grew up and eventually saw France that eventually saw other cultures and saw that there were other ways to, to talk about this, that it was not a kind of segregated thing as much everywhere else. That, that part of that kid that grew up and saw that when I read this story, that was part of why I felt so enthralled by it to, to kind of sit in a sci-fi way and imagine what if, like, mm. what if we lived in a world where sex could be part of culture, part of mainstream culture, and it could be earnest, mm -hmm. and it could be sincere, and it could be boundless. Thanks for listening, readers. We have not managed to discuss all of the important facets of these stories. Yeah, nor did we discuss all of the stories that exist. One day, I think we might. We might manage that.
Um, well, I don't think, I think math, I think there's a fairly straightforward mathematical proof. What about that all, we will not. <laughs> just all the good ones. I think we could manage that. Okay. Um, so yeah, if you have uh, thoughts that you want to share with us or recommendations for sto- good stories, obviously, that we wanted, we could discuss in future episodes. Yes, not just any story you happen to run into in the world. Get <laughs> yeah. a good one. Then you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. That's story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook if you have not deleted it. Uh, <laughs> we are at facebook.com slash storylogical. And if you have enjoyed this episode, then please head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review because that helps other people find us. And we love it when that happens. Uh, and if you really love this episode you can head over to our patreon page patreon.com slash storylogical where you can uh support us at one dollar two dollar three dollar a hundred dollar probably don't do that we'd be concerned (laughs) about you we're not providing that much value to the world and if you support at the three dollar mark then you will get chris's newsletter where chris reviews everything each month um and continuing uh our quest to to conquer the world of stories (laughs) this month amongst the many things he has reviewed are the last jedi commentary track uh fiona apple and her delicious singing in the 90s there's usually a third thing in this kind of list. <laughs> uh, Deadpool, that's definitely one not to miss. <laughs> and something else. Oh, and Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, Marie Antoinette. Yeah, masterpiece. I, I love that movie a lot. I did not love it a lot when I first saw it, but I have grown as a person, mm-hmm. uh, whereas that film has remained fairly... Exactly the same. Yeah, pretty much exactly the same. Because that's the way film works, unless you're George Lucas. Um, what do we do next? Um, yes. So, and for show notes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, links to past episodes, uh, including interviews. We just put one up a couple of weeks ago with Sophia Samatar, which is pretty amazing, as she is pretty amazing, and she was wonderful to chat with. You can find that and many other things at our home on the web storylogical.com thanks for listening happy reading almost all of my favorite film adaptations are exactly like call me by your name which is they're based on a book told from a first person point of view very strong mm-hmm. so like fight club it's a very strong point of view mm-hmm. um because I like all the best films have an atmosphere. Like the atmosphere is whatever the psychology, whatever the emotional thing they're trying to express. And so if you read a book that puts you into that space, then you as the filmmaker get to decide color palette. You get to do all of this stuff. Yeah. It'd be like looking at a... Anyway, this is one of my rants. Like <laughs> you go into an art gallery and you look at a painting and do you think, all I can see is colors on this. <laughs> I can't figure out if it has any emotional interiority. Is it trying to express anything? I think it might be impossible. I think I should go read a book. <laughs> I don't know what Emma's doing. Right now. Uh, <laughs> that one's just for you.